Hello and welcome to episode 1712 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Ah, Mickey Janice. We hardly knew you. (laughs) I wish I could say he had a good run. And it was a good run relative to most 44th round picks. Yeah. There aren't even 44th round picks anymore. There will never be 44th round picks again. To make the majors for a single game is a triumph for a 44th round pick. And hopefully it will not be his last game. But it was not a long and glorious stay in the majors. He was called up on Tuesday. He was shelled by the Astros on Thursday. And he was designated for assignment by the Orioles on Friday. So. You know, it could have gone better, but I hope he'll be back and I hope that we'll still get to talk to him sometime and no one can take it away from him. He is a major leaguer or at least was a major leaguer, which is more than most of us can say. Certainly more than either of us can say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You got to get the knuckleball back on a more lasting basis, I think. And really, it's the Orioles. I mean, what's the difference between Mickey Janice and the next best pitcher? And uh, no slight to Connor Wade, who is the pitcher who was called up to replace Mickey Janice. And maybe this is just one of those situations where they will shuffle through various players in in search of a competent pitcher right and they also made some corresponding move they optioned another righty dean kramer to norfolk and recalled a lefty alexander wells so it's just sort of a a cycling through fresh bodies situation but pitching not really a strength of the major league staff right now so at least let us enjoy the knuckleballer in the meantime they're not rudderless that's that would be the wrong way to describe them because they are sort of in in recent possession of a rudder, it just isn't yeah, one that is they have some rudder, it's, right? Uh, that is going to drive waters. It's, right, uh, they're not making <laughs> exactly much headway. The tide, they're you know sailing against <laughs> the tide, but but there's a hand at the rudder. Oh no, we're we're veering into Boris territory, <laughs> but you know the the uh, the major league club isn't isn't going anywhere this year. Um, yes. and I think that when that is the reality of your franchise. I Presenting your fans with a, a different aesthetic for a little while is a perfectly defensible way to use a roster spot because it's not like you're really using them to win, you know. Yeah. So, um, so so let him go out there and throw his knuckleball and get shelled. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're gonna be bad, don't be boring as well. Right. Exactly. <laughs> the Astros shelling people has afforded us maybe the best part of sticky stuff enforcement that I have heard tell of so far. I don't know if you noticed, Ben, but they, they put a real bruising on, on the Tigers yesterday. Yes. They beat them 12-3. to 3. And the Tigers, in a, a move that is not uncommon, threw a position player out there to, to oh, eat, yeah. eat a little bit of inning. Because yeah, it's like you're you're well past uh, the point of of winning return, and he was checked for sticky yep. stuff while he exited yeah. the mound, which I think is the the right approach. You just you have to yeah. check everyone every single time. This is how we're mm-hmm. going to ensure that no one gets preferential treatment in this new yes. era of enforcement. But I just found it very delightful. <laughs> that he Gotta was check checked. the knuckleballers, check the position player yeah. pitchers. No exceptions. No right. one will feel singled out if exactly. every single pitcher is checked every time. Exactly. So, um, you know, it isn't it isn't without its uh, entertainment value, put it that way. Yes. So 
One follow-up, perhaps the last follow-up to our ongoing discussion of player predictions. We get stuck in these <laughs> cycles where yes. we, we bring up a topic and then people write in to tell us something about that topic and then we follow up on that and then it goes on and on. It's like our framing flopping discussion that spanned like 10 <laughs> episodes. So it's just, you know, it's like a, a mini, it's like a subplot within the never-ending season of Effectively Wild. And yeah. so right now we are in the player predictions subplot this is just the the little mini arc of this never-ending season so someone pointed us to the excellent article that the athletic did earlier this year c trent rosecrans and rustin dodd and jason jenks the sort of oral history of joey Votto and gareth wrote in to say, I was reading the athletic article on Joey Votto and felt compelled to share it with you, or at least this little snippet. It says, Johnny Gomes, outfielder, I've seen Joey Votto literally plan out like a month in advance. Days he's going to hit homers, big games. You talk about Babe Ruth called his shot one time. I've seen Joey do it 10 to 15 times. This leads me to the obvious question. We know players like to predict things. We know they do it often, but does this impress you any differently if you schedule out your success like this, or does this fall under the too many predictions to merit an actual prediction umbrella? And it really seems to be a a characteristic of Vado, according to this piece here, where he does this regularly. Jay Bruce says, one day he said, I'm going to see how many balls I can foul off this at bat. He said another time we were in spring training, and Vado said, I'm going to hit a curveball out to left field today. Skip Schumacher says, I'm pretty sure you Darvish was the one pitching. And he said, if you throw me that slow curveball again, I'll hit it out of the ballpark. He threw it again, and he hit it out of the ballpark. And Gomes says, he'd be like, all right, I'm probably going to walk four times today. Or in spring training, he's like, I'm going to foul off as many pitches as I can today. I'm like, what? Sure enough. So he has this habit of doing things. And to be fair, if he intends to do these things that are maybe somewhat more under his control, like if he sets out to foul off pitches or walk, you can control those things probably to a greater degree than you can control like hitting a walk-off homer or something because uh, probably most players are trying to hit homers or hoping to hit homers all the time. And maybe if you try to do those things, it might actually hurt your ability to do those things. But if you're just trying to foul off pitches or if you're just trying to walk, you could just not swing, which is something Joey Votto does often. But anyway, apparently he had a whole schedule where he would call his shot days or weeks in advance and then try to stick to that schedule. I mean, if he's able to really do that, I suppose it is. I don't think that it it indicates his ability to be prescient so much as it indicates just how much back control he has. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe that's the same thing for our purposes. But I also wonder, you know, this this has been sort of a, a part of our conversation here that if you make a bunch of predictions all the time, really the only ones that are going to to stick are the ones that you get right. We tend to mm-hmm. forget those other predictions. But I think that if you're scheduling them out a month in advance, you're at least entertaining the notion that someone might want to, you know, double check 
on that because it is quite a departure from that. I, mean, I bet he's going to walk it off here, right? Because mm-hmm. then when he doesn't, you just, you, you're upset and you go back to the showers and then you forget about it the next day. But if someone is claiming the ability to control their schedule to this degree, I think that your odds of remembering are significantly better. So perhaps it is a testament both to his ability or ability in the past because, you know, some of that back control has waned a little bit, but yeah. both a, a testament to his ability and his boldness Right, these are the true bold predictions because the the ones made in the moment nobody's really going to hold you to. But if you're right. if you're claiming I'm going to hit a home run on this day, it's like, well, all right, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to make a note of it in my notes app, and you're <laughs> going to be held accountable for it when you fail. So, he's an odd bird, that Joey. <laughs> yes, a rare bird, a precious bird, but yeah. does sort of sadden me that he has proven to be mortal. That he yeah. has. Proven to be subject to the same aging that yeah. we all are, just because, you know, there's nothing unusual about it. It's not as if he has suffered some extremely precipitous decline. It's not the Pujols situation, but just the fact that he has followed a fairly normal aging curve yeah. sort of disappoints me because there was a time when I believed that he would not be immune to the effects of aging forever. But he seemed like if anyone was going to be able to beat Father Time or at least hold him off for a while, that it would be Joey Votto. And it just hasn't really happened. I mean, he's still a a slightly above average hitter at age 37. Like, there's no shame in that. But he has been, you know, over the course of his, what, age 35 to 37 seasons, I guess it is, his past three seasons, 2019 to 2021, we're talking about 240 games and just over 1,000 plate appearances. And he has a 106 WRC plus over that span with 1.7 war. So, you know, he's not hitting well for a first baseman anymore. And again, that is usually the case for 37-year-olds. But I really kind of bought that Joey Votto just might beat aging (laughs) just because it seemed like he had such an incredible feel for hitting, such incredible bat control that he could really tailor his approach to his strengths and his weaknesses. And he was just so cerebral about it all. And he remains a character and quotable and wonderful and an international treasure and all of that. But he is no longer a star level player. And there was part of me that hoped that like Ted Williams, whom he emulates or like some other all-time greats, He would be able to maintain that or at least some aspects of that deep into the portion of his career where a lot of players are no longer playable. And, you know, he's still playable, but no longer an above average or even necessarily an average first baseman. And that's sort of a bummer. I now am less likely to believe that anyone will be able to (laughs) defy aging because Joey Votto has not been able to. Yeah, and it goes to show that small declines in that skill set can have really meaningful impacts. I think we tend yeah. to, you know, underestimate how fragile that can be. Uh, it's not that we have plenty of examples of of guys who have sort of the big dramatic decline. You mentioned pool holes, but it doesn't always have to degrade all that much for it to have a really significant impact on your skill. So yeah. you know, it's a it's a good reminder of that because, as you said, he's not. He's certainly not unplayable. He's not unrosterable, but he's not what he was. And now you're sort of, the the thing we're starting to look for is like, where does that moment come where it's like, oh, maybe plan 
plain Votto doesn't really make much sense anymore. And that's the thing we're on the lookout for, which is sort of a bummer as opposed to in the early part of his decline. I think that I was like you, I assumed that there could be, you know, that he'd, he'd kind of defy the odds for a long time. And so what I was looking for was the bounce back. And I yeah. don't think that's coming anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a bummer. I <laughs> have you, have you spent any time watching the, um, the umpire cams that have gone, uh, that have been on, uh, going on during the college world series, Ben? No. So they have the umpires where cameras, I guess they're GoPros probably, you see like college pitching, you see college pitching come in. And some of the guys, you know, in this, in this class are going to be big leaguers. Some of them are going to be first rounders and, you know, they'll go on to have long um, and hopefully productive and, and accomplished major league careers. But some of them are also, you know, they're college pitchers. They're not going to do anything more than play college ball and then have cool stories to tell their family from now on. And you see those pitches coming in and you're like, how does it, you know, it's just one more day where you're like, how does anyone ever put a bat to a ball? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, we ask them to do the hardest thing so many times. Yep. <laughs> they just have to do it so many times. And of course them doing it so many times makes it ever so slightly easier, which is why they're able to do it. But anyway, I just was thinking of that as you were noting the the decline. Cause you're like, yeah, this is really just tremendously difficult. It is yeah. just really one of the harder things that we ever ask humans to do. So it's not surprising that you there'd can't be just a think yourself right. out of it. <laughs> you can't think the decline away. Like maybe no. you can for a while. I mean, if it were purely dependent on physical skills, then players would probably decline even quicker than they yeah. do. But they Agreed. do have some wisdom and some plate discipline and maybe strike zone recognition and, and that stuff can slip with age too. But you do pick up certain things that right. if you had known them as a young player, maybe you would have been even better and you can compensate with what you've learned even as the physical skills start to slip. But there is a point at which even if you're Joey Votto, even if you think about this stuff in a really in-depth and enlightened way and he does these like annual or biannual state of the Vado addresses where he talks to C. Trent or he talks to Eno Saris and they're just these fascinating interviews and you can tell he's thinking about these things in a way that a lot of players don't and yet it's just not enough at a certain point. And yeah. as you said, it can be little slight erosions. Sometimes right. it's physical stuff. Sometimes it's just you lose a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah. And each little loss amplifies the other so that right. it's, yeah, it's not like Pujols where he has the lower body issues and he can't run or surprisingly, inexplicably, he stops walking all of a sudden. With Vado, it's uh, more subtle, I guess. It's like, you know, you lose a little power and suddenly you get challenged more. And if you're a selective right. hitter, then that doesn't translate to as many walks as it did. And you're not punishing those pitches in the zone. And yeah, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And suddenly you look up and you're no longer a great hitter. Right. Your pitch recognition might be the same, but your ability to act on it is... yeah you know, ever so slightly diminished and the margins are pretty narrow sometimes. And that can be enough to really change the whole character of your offensive performance and and season. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we sit here and we tell people, well, this weirdo was so good at stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the youths don't believe us. No, they yeah. do. There's enough. There's enough of of vintage Votto, I think, in there that people can recognize just how incredible he was. But it isn't quite the same. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a very, in some ways, mean thing that we ask of them because we all experience slight decline over the years in our own mm-hmm. lives. You know, we don't bounce back from little injuries or illnesses the way that we used to and we struggle to come up with a name that would have been just right there for us in years past but like we do that at home no one knows yeah. and when we do it on the podcast Dylan fi- yeah. yeah Dylan fixes it for us because he's he's sure a good editor and a nice guy and mm-hmm. so we're able to maintain the illusion that we're just as sharp as we were yeah but we keep doing this podcast for another 30 years or so maybe dylan doesn't catch those things right and now they're slipping into the podcast so then you need an editor for the editor now (sighs) ah well that's today's reminder of our mortality yeah of effectively wild (laughs) so last thing on the player predictions and then after this no one is allowed to email us about this anymore no that's not true you can but it better be good yeah you're gonna do it so this one comes from ron And he says, listening to your discussion of player predictions on the most recent version of Effectively Wild reminded me of a Sports Illustrated article about Greg Maddox I read years ago. In particular, I recalled that the article discussed Maddox's ability to call when a foul ball was going to be hit into the Braves dugout. After a bit of internet sleuthing, I found that my memory was correct. The relevant passage and a link to the article are below. If true, Maddox's predictive talents go far beyond the pedestrian player predictions you discussed and suggest that Maddox is a modern-day Nostradamus, at least when it comes to foul balls. So I'll link to the piece, but this is a August 1995 feature from Tom Verducci at Sports Illustrated, and he wrote, What sets Maddox apart is an analytical Pentium quick mind that constantly processes information no one else sees. That's a 1995 sentence for you. Pentium quick mind. I guess you can't really use that anymore. I think the Pentium processors are like the low-end entry-level processors now. And back then they were high-end. Although I guess today's Pentium chips are still faster than 1995. So maybe it works on that level, but it's probably not quite as complimentary as it was at the time. Verducci continues, at home in Las Vegas, he is a formidable poker player, detecting when an opponent has a good hand by the way he strokes his chin or suddenly stops fiddling with his chips. Maddox uses a numerical system in his head that tells him when to stand and when to hit at the blackjack table, but he is even better at analyzing hitters. So good that four times this year, while seated next to Smoltz in the dugout, he has warned, this guy's going to hit a foul ball in here. Three of those times, a foul came screeching into the dugout. So I like this one because, for one, it reinforces the idea that Greg Maddox, like Joey Votto, has some deeper level of understanding of the game. But also, we have the denominator here. We have how many times he predicted this thing. He predicted it four times. He went three for four. That is the vital information. That seems pretty good. And also, he's not just predicting your run-of-the-mill positive outcome. He's predicting a foul into the dugout. Not just a foul, but a foul into the dugout. That is hyper-specific. And would this have been a repeatable ability? I don't know, but I could believe that Maddox was just so adept at reading hitters and perhaps predicting pitch sequences that he could actually identify when this was more likely. Or maybe he just got lucky. But either way, 
we have how many times he did it and how many times he succeeded, at least in the sample of this single season. So well done, Tom Verducci, in relaying this anecdote and giving us the relevant information for once. What do we think the state of like spray charts were in 1995? You said 95 or yep. 98? 95. 95. What do you think the the um, sort of both availability and accuracy of spray charts were at that time for a given hitter? I would think that they had them. I, I know they existed right. even earlier, and there were people using computers and tracking those things in the 80s even, but I'm sure they weren't as easily accessible as they are today. Right. And they also probably, they would have been hand-charted as right. opposed to tracked by some sort of system. So probably less accurate. And I doubt that they would have included foul balls on Probably them. not. So yeah, I don't know if he was consulting the spray charts when he when he made these predictions or whether he just had some preternatural sense of what right. was going to happen. Or it was a fluke, but still interesting anecdote. Indeed. And and my guess would be that he was not consulting anything because even, as you said, even what was available was probably not widely disseminated, probably didn't include fouls and would have been uh, a thing he would have had to like go and ask for, right? He would mm-hmm. have had to say like, hey, I'm interested in this thing. Yeah. But I like that one. Like you said, we know how many times, but I do wonder if it is just indicative of what you can sort of intuitively divine just by watching a lot of baseball. <laughs> yeah. You know, just by watching guys a lot and and seeing what their tendencies are and sort of how they approach approach their work. But yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Only yep. four. I mean, that's that's probably apart from knowing if you're going to win the game, that might be one of the more useful predictions because if you get that right, you can avert major injury potentially (laughs) that's true yeah right a big competitive advantage just have everyone clear out of the way right it's like we were worried because one of our hitters was going to take a ball to the face but then we were able to look down the way and see this is one of the four predicted times we got everyone out of dodge and then it was fine like i think Mm -hmm. i think that's a pretty useful skill All right. Well, we can get to some emails that are not about player predictions. You don't want to talk about the Cubs throwing a combined (laughs) no-hitter? I was just going to say, like, I feel almost (laughs) obligated still to acknowledge the fact that there was a no-hitter, even though everyone is so blasé about it now that the Cubs relievers were not even aware that they were throwing a combined (laughs) no-hitter until after the game was over. And multiple pitchers, multiple starting pitchers were pulled during no-hit attempts just on Thursday alone because it's like, eh, whatever, another no-hitter. And this was not only a combined no-hitter, which always saps whatever specialness remains of it, or at least some of that specialness, but also eight walks. So there were a lot of base runners. So this was like the ultimate in the inconsequential no-hitter. But Congrats to the Cubs. <laughs> right. I, I only bring it up because we were, you know, we spent a lot of time on the question of whether the the sort of specialness of this event was diminished by its frequency uh, relative to prior seasons. And I think we were inclined to sort of give credit to teams and pitchers for having a good outing and, and doing a good job and recording a no-hitter, even if it was occurring with great frequency. And then the monkey's paw curled and <laughs> we got this game. So yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, we got a little bit of a break between no hitters. Yeah, we sure did. So now this is the modern record tying no hitter seven, if you don't count the Bumgarner one. And this is maybe more notable just from the fact that it was the Dodgers getting no hit. It was not the Rangers or the Mariners or for once, the teams that always seem to be on the wrong end of these things. This was actually a good team and a team that has been banged up. Like we haven't talked about the Dodgers lately. They've been pretty streaky where they've looked like the team they were supposed to be for a while. And then they have floundered for a while and then they've snapped back into form and they've been pretty good up until this week when they have been not good at all. But It is striking just how many players they have gone through. And this is a team that was lauded for its depth, who had more depth and redundancy than the Dodgers entering the season. But they have not only had to scramble with internal replacements, but also external replacements. Like, who could have projected that the Dodgers would be signing Albert Pujols, would be bringing in and then discarding Yoshi Tsutsugo. I guess Steven Souza is the latest and yeah. just trying to patch some holes until other guys get back. You know, Corey Seager coming back and Cody Bellinger is back now, but there have been just so many injuries, some serious, some season ending, some short term, but Even a team like the Dodgers, with as much talent and depth as they have, they have had to bring in other teams, lesser teams, rejects, just to have some warm bodies at times. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that for the Dodgers, it had to have been a particularly grim feeling sort of evening, because it's not just that they were no hit, but they were no hit in truly unspectacular fashion, if such a thing is possible. And so they really have to be feeling their own mortality right now. It's one thing to just get totally dominated by a guy, right? Sometimes you're like... Well, I mean, like John means, it's like, this is just an excellent performance and there are a lot of unhittable, like secondary pitches and what are you going to do? Sometimes that happens. But when it's like, Zach Davies, (laughs) oh, like 85, you know, you just sit there and you're like, what have we done wrong? I don't know if Corey Sears enough to fix it. Also, Cody Bellinger's uh, grown his hair out in a way that we will probably have to talk about at some point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is a look. Yeah. Yeah. And we should say that despite all of the shorthandedness, the Dodgers are still winning at a 95-win pace. So that would not be disappointing for any other team in baseball, probably. It's just that they entered the season with such high expectations. And I would take the over on 95. I would guess that they get healthier in the second half of the season than they've been in the first and that they will be firing on all cylinders sometime soon. I still think that it's the best team in baseball that if I had to pick one team to win the most games from now until the end of the regular season, it would be the Dodgers. And I know that they are missing some guys and I know that the bullpen has been shaky at times, but that's kind of a constant for the Dodgers lately too. Like if there's one thing that the Dodgers haven't really done during this run, it's build total shutdown bullpens like some of the I don't know the Royals late inning bullpens or the Yankees late inning bullpens like the Dodgers have seemed somewhat vulnerable at least until they get to October and they can put their two extra major league quality starters into the bullpen every time (laughs) so that will probably happen again and Kenley Jansen is his old self somehow suddenly so 
none of these problems are really disqualifying in any right. way, but it has enabled the Giants to maintain that lead, still trucking along. Good for the Giants, maintaining yeah, that first place status far longer than anyone expected them to. And really goofing up the trade deadline, I would expect, because starter, be, yeah. starters are thin on the ground, uh, Ben, mm-hmm. and some of the good ones are on the Giants, and I don't think that they're going to trade them away. <laughs> Speaking of which, the Cubs could use a starter, too. And (laughs) they had a really good one, as I recall, last season that uh, they chose to trade away. That was weird. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know whether they thought they wouldn't contend without Darvish. and, And so they thought, let's rebuild. Or they thought we're good enough to win this division without Darvish. And, and like, they were good enough to contend, which they are. They're like neck and neck with the Brewers right now in the NL Central, which makes it almost more glaring that they chose to trade away the the very thing that they most need right now and is probably least available. It's like, I think Joe Sheehan made the the comp to like the, the Cleveland owner in Major League, you know, Rachel Phelps just trying to tear down the team and the players doing their best to disrupt the plan by playing better than expected. It's sort of akin to that and that the Cubs haven't really invested in their roster and have even subtracted from it. And yet, They still have that core of Bryant and Rizzo and Baez and Contreras and Hendricks, who's been a lot better of late. And that was a championship caliber core for them. And even without a great supporting cast, it's still a contending in the NL Central core. So, yeah, if they had an ace, that sure would come in handy right about now. (sighs) Yeah, it sure would. It sure would. (laughs) Just try to win all the time, you know? If you're good already, yeah. <laughs> if you just need a U Darvish to put you over the top, potentially, that was just a weird time yeah. to say, let's regroup and rebuild and get a bunch of prospects who might be good several years from now. This is like the last hurrah for a lot of this core, potentially. Yeah. They should make one more run at it. They're doing their best, just not without much support from ownership. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's get to a few. So Mike says, do you think MLB regrets making its StatCast data publicly available since those metrics have fueled the controversies about the juiced balls and sticky stuff? It's kind of funny that MLB freely provides the evidence that fans and media have used to prove that pitchers are cheating and that the league made surreptitious changes to the baseball, (laughs) which is... Something I've thought about. Yeah. And information wants to be free. And it's nice that we have this information. And I wish we had more. There's some stat cast data that is only provided to teams or is available to people internally, but is not published. And I wish it were. But there is a good amount of information out there following in the tradition of Pitch FX, which I believe was published and made available accidentally. Yes. And then that just became the norm. And I think that MLB and Sport Vision found that it was mutually beneficial and that it drove interest in the game and the data. And it also provided an opportunity for some of the public experts to examine that data and do analyses and find problems with it. So I think it has been a mutually beneficial arrangement. And I think it still is to an extent in that a lot of writers and media members and fans like to dig into this data and share it and analyze it. But it is true as well that probably a lot of the fuss about the ball and the foreign substances would be more muted 
if we just didn't have the information to figure out what was going on there. Like a lot of the public analysis has been based on the drag of the baseball, which is determined by looking at the path of the baseball and how much it slows, say, between home plate and the pitcher's mound and how it carries once it's hit. And a lot of that is staff cast information, as is spin rate, which comes from TrackMan originally and Hawkeye now. And if we didn't have that data, then it probably would be a little less of a circus. Like we wouldn't have the forensic spin rate analysis on baseball savant after every game, looking at who lost a couple hundred RPM and who didn't. So I do wonder whether that has become a bit of a headache or whether the league has mixed feelings about having that information out there now that it has come back to bite them in some sense. Although if it's making the game better to do away with the sticky stuff and lower lower the spin rates, then perhaps it will be beneficial to MLB as well. I imagine that to the degree that they have any regrets at all they probably have more to do with the changes in the ball than they do with sticky stuff yeah because well i wonder if i actually do think that though because here's what i imagine would have happened if we didn't have that information people would have noticed that like you know d gordon was hitting home runs right (laughs) like they're the exact characteristics of the ball and the way that it behaves would have been somewhat more of a mystery but some of the like the observable phenomena as a result of those changes wouldn't have disappeared right we'd still see those home runs so you know when you think about what brought the sticky stuff situation to a head i think a lot of it would have been stuff that we would have been made aware of even if we weren't able to look at you know an individual pitcher's spin start to start and say ha surely he has the spider tack because you know they were they were doing their own data collection. Clearly, they would maintain their own access to StatCast, so they would have been aware of the changes in spin. And a lot of this was being driven by hitters being kind of pissed, right? Mm-hmm. And feeling like the balance had gotten out of whack between you know, pitching and hitting. So I think that in some ways, while I'm sure they would rather there just not be controversies around the game at all, in a weird way, I wonder if this is actually the ideal scenario for them because... When you have the means as a researcher to get the data you need to analyze a particular situation, you're probably less inclined to spend time squawking at the league for not giving you more. I mean, I think that we wish that the discourse around the changes to the ball had been different, and it was frustrating to have the commissioner's office seemingly saying like everything is the same, like this isn't mm-hmm. that different at all when their own, you know, commissioned report showed that that was not true. But we were at least able to sort of dig in and point to the changes. Whereas I think that if that information were not publicly available, we'd be sitting here saying, we know that something is different. Like we can observe changes to the game and the way that sort of the shape of offense, but we don't have the means to to really dig into that. So give me it, give me it, give me it. And that would have mm-hmm. been the conversation. It would have been, you know, public side researchers saying, we're not dummies. We know that something has shifted. Please give us the data so that we can, you know, more accurately analyze and then describe those changes. So I, I'm sure they wish that we were just less inquisitive. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> we're such a pain in the ass, you know, not you and me specifically, although sometimes mm-hmm. you and me specifically, but as a group, we're like, you know, delightfully annoying in our persistence, right? We want to understand the game. And so we dig into it, but right. we would have that instinct, I imagine, regardless of the availability of the data. And at least this way, they're spared, you know, a chorus of public facing writers being like, give me it, give me it. <laughs> yeah. Because that's an annoying, it's an annoying sound even, you know, and then they'd have to respond to it and there would be even more charges of sort of weird conspiracy nonsense yeah. surrounding it. So I, mm-hmm. I, I do wonder if maybe this gives them <laughs> for lack of a better word, like a bat and a ball in terms of their uh, their desire to enforce it. It's a lot easier for the commissioner to say like, no, look at this mountain of research that has been produced about what spin does to offense and how right. spin has changed over time. Surely we need to get into this and figure it out because you can't deny this research, right? In some respects, it gives them you know, ammunition to to bring the issue to the fore and make it an enforcement priority. So I think they're probably fine on that. I'm sure they would rather us not talk about the ball ever again. <laughs> but the spin <laughs> no. stuff, I bet they don't mind. <laughs> no, you're right, though. As kind of clandestine as, as the whole operation with MLB and the ball has seemed in as many conspiracy theories as that has spawned, and as much as it seems as if MLB has tried to dissemble or sweep some of that stuff under the rug... Imagine how much more it would seem like that if they were hiding all of this information, if we knew that StatCast existed, but only teams had access to it and the league was sitting on all of this information that could help expose the part that the ball has played in all this and was just not publicly disseminating that. That would make it look even more like a cover-up. So in that sense, yeah, maybe they're better off just putting it out there, even if it makes them look bad because they haven't been able to control the ball in some past seasons. At least they were not trying to squash the evidence that they were not good at controlling the ball. So that's something. Quash the evidence. Squash the evidence. I guess it would be quash. 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 But. It's also probably beneficial that now that they have done this crackdown with the foreign substances, we can tell that it's working. Right. So we can see the spin rates dropping, which after the fact sort of backs up MLP's decision to do something about this because we can see that it wasn't some sort of witch hunt or imaginary problem. No, suddenly the spin rates really are sinking, which sort of justifies their decision to do something about it. And I guess from MLB's perspective, puts the onus on individual players more so than the league, which is probably to the league's liking. I mean, I don't know if that's their main motivation, but if someone has to be blamed for the sticky stuff situation, then they'd probably prefer to have people pointing fingers at players than at the commissioner. So the fact that this information is published the way it is and people scrutinize the results after every pitcher appearance, that makes it more likely, I think, for people to say, oh, Trevor Bauer, oh, Garrett Cole, not uh, Rob Manfred. So right. there are ways in which it probably benefits MLB to have this information out there. Yeah, and it is sort of funny to think about, like, where would our lives Yours and mine. Like, where would our lives be if someone hadn't accidentally, like, released PitchFX data to the world? Yeah, I think about that, too. (laughs) I think about that all the time, Ben. I think about that at least once a week. Like, this became just, like, an inadvertently public source of information for people. 
and, you know, Felix was good, and now here I am, right? Like, the course mm-hmm. of my life has been dictated in some small or large part by those two things, mm-hmm. like, happening. It's really very random, so it's nice when stuff works out, because, gosh, does it seem like it's on accident a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, imagine if we were still stuck looking at just purely results or, or ground right. ball rates or something without having any info on velocity and pitch selection and movement and spin rate. In some ways, that stuff can be a curse as well as a blessing right. because you realize that every time you want to analyze everything, it becomes a super deep dive just because there's so much information. Right. But it's also nice to know things and not have to wildly speculate about things. I mean, baseball writers got by for a long time with a lot less information than PitchFX. They may not have had basic stats at all, and they still wrote stuff. So I guess people would have kept coming up with things to say. It just probably would have been less rooted in actual information. <laughs> Sometimes I do miss that era of baseball writing, though, because yeah. they'd be like, I'm wondering about this thing. Here's what I can't explain. <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> yep. Just fire from the hip. Yep. Just uh, make up tall tales. Who's going to be able to check? It's not like you can go back and look at the play-by-play log from that game. So we'll just make something up or yep. we'll just speculate about something that we have no way to answer and everyone will be fine with that. Right. Those were the days. Yeah. All right. Here is a question from another Ben who says, I was watching Monday's game. I don't know which Monday this was, a recent Monday between the Rays and Yankees. And Rich Hill, who had been cruising to that point with a 3 nothing lead, surrendered a one-out walk to Brett Gardner. To my surprise, the Rays pitching coach came up the mound. Why does Hill need help, I thought? It looks like if anyone needs a coaching visit, it is the Yankees hitters. This got me thinking about when and how the practice of visits from pitching coaches was introduced when I've never seen a hitting coach leave the dugout for similar reasons. What would it look like if it were more customary in baseball for hitting coaches to visit batters in the middle of an inning? Would they appear in high leverage situations only or in more general situations as well, mid-count or only before at bats? What kind of advice might they give? Would hitters resent this intervention in a way pitchers appear not to? Is it unfair to hitters that pitchers are permitted visits from their coaches while they are not? Could hitting coaches intervening in at-bats help offensive production, or would it be more counterproductive? In any case, Rich Hill went on to immediately induce an inning-ending double play, so I guess the visit went well, or returning to my initial point was unnecessary. So yeah, we don't have hitting coach mid-inning visits. It is sort of an odd thing, isn't it? I mean, I guess that you have the opportunity to talk to your hitting coach literally right before you step into the batter's yes. box. <laughs> You're not stranded out there for a while. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, you have an opportunity to both get a, you know, kind of get a scouting report on a pitcher before you, well, I guess really before you step into the on-deck circle, and then you have an opportunity to debrief after your at-bat is over or you've returned to the dugout when, you know, you've scored or what have you. So can't use the word debrief anymore in this week of Sergio Romo. Oh, all, all sorts of things. He had his briefs on. He depantsed. <laughs> he un- That's true. unpantsed. He yes. disrobed. Well, <laughs> Partly. Uh, <laughs> but so you, you have an opportunity to talk it through at some point, right? And you're certainly going to be communicating not only with the 
the hitting coach for your own benefit, but with other hitters on your team for theirs and yours, you know, what they saw when they were up there. And you you see, it's not uncommon when a guy, like if a guy strikes out and he's trudging back to the dugout, he'll kind of give the guy in the on-deck circle a little tip about what he just saw, right? Yeah. So that's not unusual. But I do wonder if it just comes back to the tradition of it being kind of, you know, it's fundamentally reactive on the hitter's part. The exercise right. is just fundamentally reactive. And so I think given that that's the way we think about it, maybe we just think, man, you're on your own for this yeah. one. I think hitters would hate it. <laughs> I think that they would... I think that they would absolutely hate it if the hitting coach came up mid at bat, in part because we've never done it before. And so it would feel very, it would feel like you had really goofed up, right? If they were coming up there mid at bat to be like, I don't know, pick a bad hitter. I don't yeah. know. There are all sorts of reasons why this doesn't happen, yeah. I think. And it's probably better that it doesn't. Again, I am against all mid-inning coaching visits yeah, you don't <laughs> aside like from injury-related yeah. visits. But yeah. Yeah, between the fact that you can look at your iPad and see the picture right before you go out there and you can consult your coach much closer to the action than a pitcher who is maybe a few batters into an inning. Plus, there's probably fewer ways for your mechanics to get screwed up. Right. Pitching is just a more complicated motion, which isn't to say that hitters can't have screwed up mechanics too, but I don't know if it's as obvious or as fixable in the short term right you know where with a pitcher you can go out there and say the usual stuff about flying open or whatever people say and maybe you can actually correct something in the moment whereas i don't know if that's as easy to do with hitting that might be something that you need to work on in the cage and also you can talk between at bats and maybe you could even just shout something out there i don't know But also, as you said, because it's reactive, like you can't go out there and game plan like, here's what you're going to throw here. (laughs) Or we want to face this guy or do this with this guy and then set up the next plate appearance, you know, or maybe we want to pitch around this guy and then pitch to that guy. Like the hitter doesn't have a choice of those things. He he, he can't choose to be pitched around or, or choose to face another pitcher. He just, you know, luck of the draw and... You can make some strategic choices about whether you're going to swing or not, but really you are forced to react to what is thrown your way. So there wouldn't be nearly as much for a a hitting coach to say mid at bat, fortunately. Right. And, you know, I think that we have done a bad job. We we talk all the time about how we can speed up the game, right? And increase the, decrease the delays and increase the action. We wouldn't want to increase the delays. That would be <laughs> counterproductive. But we already let hitters get away with all kinds of nonsense. They adjust their batting gloves. They do all this stuff in the box. Can you imagine if they could also call the hitting coach out there? It would just be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Go Imagine on and that. on it's and like on. It's like you you take a bad swing and you're down 0-2. Oh, here comes the hitting coach. Right. <laughs> and he's like coaching him through, all right, don't swing at a terrible pitch right. this what time. What would you say? <laughs> I mean, I guess that you could remind him of the pitcher's tendencies. Like yes. what he often throws in this count, in this situation. But you probably know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You should, yeah. You should know that before you go up there. And, you know, it's not like you can really say, okay, throw a different pitch or what have mm-hmm. you. So I don't, I think that that's probably why we're like, it's reactive. Go react. Yep. Yep. 
See the ball, hit the ball, as they say, although it can be much more complicated than that. Okay, Kate says, I am not a baseball fan, but I live with one of your Patreon supporters. And so I have somewhat grudgingly learned many baseball stat acronyms. (laughs) So sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, Kate. One of the ones that seems inaccurate to me is war wins by replacement. Technically, war is based on a league average replacement metric, but realistically, the player's replacement would most likely be from the team's actual farm system. So I'm curious, how would war be different if it were calculated based on the average of wins for players within each farm system rather than the league average? Seems like a team with a strong farm system would have players with a lower war than those on teams with a weak system, right? Or am I overthinking something? Like, is this accounted for somewhere else in war calculations? I feel so sorry that we have driven Kate to this point. Although it's impressive that she's not a baseball fan and yet has been subjected to so much Effectively Wild that she is now emailing us independent seemingly of the cohabitant who is a patreon supporter to ask about advanced stat in a a pretty nuanced way like how much effectively well i mean right whoever kate is living with here i i hope you are using headphones and like not putting this (laughs) on a a shared speaker system when kate is not in the mood to listen to a, a baseball podcast despite not being a baseball fan so I don't know. Practice your effectively wild listening responsibly. I mean, I'm all for people supporting the podcast and listening to the podcast, but you do have to consider the other people, the collateral damage here in these listening scenarios. So poor Kate, who's uh, now just so indoctrinated that she's emailing us about war. Wow. Yeah. I... (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a lot of really long road trips, like, in a (laughs) row? Right. Was there no music that you could have put on instead? <laughs> I mean, anyway, thank you to, to Kate's Patreon supporter cohabitant. And yes. thank you to Kate for putting up with this. Yeah, <laughs> so, we're really sorry. I hope the jokes are enough. <laughs> it is actually an interesting question, though. And I would be interested in seeing a team-specific war. Yeah. It would be, for one thing, really difficult to do. It would be very complicated. You would have to account for all sorts of factors that you do not have to account for with war because uh, you'd have to have people maintaining the depth charts at all times. You you know, I guess Jason Martinez is is already busily doing that, but you would need the roster resource style depth charts to give you, you know, who would be the next up, who is the replacement at all positions, at all times, on all teams. <laughs> so right. that's an issue. Whereas with war, there's a, a lot less manual input there, which is a, a feature of war. Yes. And also, it is useful this way to have the common baseline right. <laughs> so that you could actually use word to evaluate players on all teams right. and compare them to the same baseline which uh in most situations where you want to use word you want to compare a player on team a to the player on team b right, right. and so you don't want to consider the context sensitive factors there right. you you want it to be context neutral so that you can have a common comparison and 
for most of the applications, if you're evaluating a free agent, and well, if you're evaluating a free agent for a specific team, then you do actually want to consider who their replacement would be. But right. you know, if you're trying to value a player's production or consider Hall of Fame credentials or maybe MVP race, I, I guess you could say that value is dependent on the player's specific team situation. So you could consider that. But I think... It's more useful to have war the way that we have it now than this way, but I would want both if it weren't a prohibitive (laughs) amount of work. It it would be kind of interesting to say that a player on a team with a, a thin farm system is actually maybe much more valuable to that team in a way than the player on the team with the deep farm system who has a bunch of competent replacements waiting in the wings in AAA. Like that would be maybe less a a individual stat than a team or organization stat, but right. it would be revealing in some ways. Well, and you would need to have a lot of confidence in your minor league to big league translations, right? Yeah, because that's true too. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you're talking about guys where you have a good sense of what, you know, that quad A player in the big league looks like because you've seen it before. But sometimes you're dealing with guys, you know, like before Wander Franco debuts, how do you gauge the war of shortstops on the Rays? You know, you yeah, probably right. have a lot of confidence that Wander Franco is going to be pretty good, but there is an adjustment in prospects to bust. So you'd need to have a lot of confidence in the predictive ability of your sort of translation from minor league stats to major league stats. Right. And you also have like three or four other people who could play competent shortstop for the race at various points this season. So that part makes it tricky too. And so yeah, we are sacrificing some some degree of precision in order to have a more broadly applicable stat. And I think that when we, like you said, when we think about what we're using wins above replacement to really capture, that trade-off is very much worth it. But it is slightly less precise. But hopefully people are being upfront about the the sort of error and room for error in in war as it exists, regardless of the baseline that you're using, because it isn't, you know, we spent time at the beginning of this season, and I think we spend time at mo- during most seasons, like telling people to not get overly fussed about very minute differences in war if they're like trying to, you know, have an MVP debate, and you're like, that guy's worth five wins, and that guy's only worth 4.9, and you're like, well, hold on a minute there. Yeah. Don't get sassy about that. So there's, you know, there's error in any stat, right? That is trying to mm-hmm. describe something as as sort of all-encompassing as war is. But I think that for its purpose, it, it does a pretty good job. And a part of it too is that I think that there's value in stats being reasonably easy to understand and sort of and and sort of figure out. I think that in terms of how likely they are to be adopted by people and sort of how likely they are to be a means by which people understand the game. There is something to be said for them being as straightforward as possible. Now there's complication in all of this stuff and some stats are, uh, you know, you need, you need a, a whole bunch of stuff in a black box to calculate them. And those stats are useful too. But I do think that they're, them being sort of straightforward is in some ways really useful to people actually using them. So Yeah. 
yeah, it's already what? There's a fan graphs war, right. there's a baseball reference Why? war, there's a baseball prospectus right. warp, and now it would be, wait, so this guy is worth this many more on this team, but right. if he were on that team, he'd be worth that many more. Right. So yeah, you'd have to you'd have to have an advanced degree to use right. that responsibly, probably. So it would be useful in, in some cases, I think. Even just to convey like the different levels of depth that organizations have, because depth can be a tough thing to quantify. And it's something that probably in the playoff odds and projections is not perfectly accounted for. And so if you could perfectly account for that, then that would be helpful to have. But I shudder to think of the MVP debates because people already find so many different ways to interpret the word valuable, whether it's clutchness, whether it's the playoff implications, how good the players' teammates are. And now if we were considering not just the players' teammates or sometimes people will even pull salary into it for no good reason really, but if you were also to consider like – who is the backup to this player and so how much more valuable is he really compared to the player who would be playing in his stead if something were to happen to him oh that would give you endless material for really pointless columns at the end of the season so some baseball writers would probably appreciate that but i would not (laughs) right i think oh god can you imagine oh Oh, no. It would be nightmarish. But, right, all you have to do is point to the way that we projected the playoff odds for the Rays going into this season to to see that, you know, there are there are some aspects of this stuff that can be kind of wanting. We don't account for depth as well as, you know, we ought to. I think that when, when other Ben, when Ben Clemens wrote about sort of his takeaways from our playoff odds before the season started, this was one of the things that he pointed out. It's just, it's not that the projections are wrong. It's just that dealing with that kind of depth is, is sort of hard to fold in. And so, you know, if there was going to be one place where we were potentially really discounting a team, then the race were going to be it. And now you look at the, our playoff odds and you're like, well, weren't you so clever, Ben? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's it's not perfect, but I think that it does a good descriptive job and is certainly far less complicated than it would be. So we're going to stick with it. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for the question, Kate, and apologies again for the podcast Stockholm Syndrome here. All right. Oh, Here's one from Matthew, Patreon supporter. I think you would be qualified to answer this question. Oh, no. Matthew says, listening to your discussion in episode 1694 about the experience of being a Mariners fan mm. over the last two decades got me thinking about whether it was, in fact, much worse to root for a terrible team as opposed to a merely below average one. To me, the difference between a 72 and 90 season and a 62 and 100 season is on the margin. There were 10 fewer days on which you could celebrate wins, excluding minor other factors like potentially being in contention for slightly longer. But from your discussion and reader emails and general baseball conversations, I feel like there's a belief that losing 100 games is worse than losing 90 games by more than the simple difference in the number of losses. In this line of thought, there is extra badness that emanates from a truly terrible team that makes the experience of rooting for them more soul-crushing. Do you think a lot of people have that sense, or am I totally off-base? If so, do you think there is a level at which the extra badness factor kicks in, 
or is there a small multiplier that applies to each extra loss so that you accumulate a little extra badness when the team slides down the scale from 68 wins to 67 to 66, etc., and that adds up eventually? From my own experiences as a Mets fan, I tend to stop paying close attention or trying to watch most games basically once the team goes below 500. I still enjoy watching and going to games when they are bad, but I am less likely to be invested on a day-to-day basis. I think this probably leads me not to notice the difference between a below-average 75-win team and a truly terrible 60-win team, or at least to notice it less than others. I wonder what the answer to this question is for like a normal fan. Because I don't know that I'm a particularly representative sample. I think that I think that once you're approaching the hundred loss sort of mark, and it it's it's its own kind of thing. I think that it's less the difference between say ninety and a hundred as it is between like eighty and a hundred. Like mm-hmm. that's where you start to have a noticeable difference in your experience of something. Because if you have a team that manages to float for extended periods of time, sort of around 500, especially in the wild card era, it's not necessarily difficult to convince yourself that like, oh, maybe they'll go on a little run. Yeah. And you never know, right? You never know what'll happen if they go on a little run and they're a team that's around 500. Like a team that's around 500 that goes on a little run might be a wild card team right that might be a team or at least a team that you think could be a wild card team like with two weeks left of the season and mm-hmm. that's a dramatically different fan experience than oh my god this baseball team is going to <laughs> lose 100 games it's 100 yeah. games a round number 100 games and i think that you know some portion of the fan base especially if it's a team that is being bad sort of on purpose with the hope that it will be better later might look at that and say well now we're gonna get the number one pick in the draft and maybe they can kind of get excited about that but that's not about the team they're watching that's about the team they want to watch like six years from now and so i think that for for most people if you have if you're able to trick yourself into thinking that you might contend, <laughs> there's several caveats in that sentence, but if you're in that, then, you know, then you're like, you're curious, you know, if the nightly news comes on, your local news, and you missed the sports section, you might turn to the person you live with, your effectively wild Patreon <laughs> co-inhabitant and say, yes. wait, what did they say about our local team? What, what did they win tonight? And mm-hmm. and you're interested and you're engaged. If they're close to losing, they're on track to lose a hundred games. You're just I. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna share a story from the 2015 Mariners, which as an aside was not a hundred loss team, right? They were just mm-hmm. a bad baseball team. They were bad in a boring way, which I think is the sort of exception to the scenario I'm describing. Because sometimes a team is like pretty thoroughly mediocre. And they manage to be that way in the the most boring way possible. And then you're just like, I don't know. So the 2015 Mariners were the first team. That was the first team that I covered. That was the first year I wrote at Lookout Landing. And they were just like a thoroughly underwhelming team. They were just the 2015 Mariners. They won. Let's see. How many games did that team win? How many games would you guess that team won, Ben? Hmm. You Let's, would know better than I. Yeah, <laughs> having lived through you think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, so they ended up. They were seventy six and eighty six. So uh, mm-hmm. they were un- an under five hundred team, but not like you know they didn't lose 
They didn't lose 100 games. They they won 76 of their games. And I remember we got to a point in the season where you when you write for a team blog, you just have to cover them every single day, no matter what's going on. And yeah. I, I remember, I think they had fired Jack Sorensic, but the season was not over yet. <laughs> <laughs> so like, that was another thing that had happened is like, they fired Jack Sorensic in late August. They still had a month of the season to play. And I remember Colin O'Keefe, who wrote for Lookout Landing for a long time, ended up working for the Mariners for a while. He would come into the Slack and just say, I can't believe they have to play again. Today. <laughs> it was like, I can't believe they're making them do this for another month, like a whole mm-hmm. other month, you know? So I think that if you can win every couple of days, it's often enough to stay engaged. And you don't feel like your team is potentially going to be remembered for its losing, right? Because so many teams are mediocre. They win 75 games and that's their season. That happens all the time. No one's going to remember that. I had to look up the record of the Mariners from that year and I covered that dumb team. So no one's going to remember. But once you get into like the 100 loss territory, then you're like potentially flirting with some like infamy in a way Mm -hmm. that you don't want. You don't want to flirt with infamy. It's bad. Yeah. In a way, I'm not qualified to answer this question because not only have I not really been a fan for a while, but when I was a fan, I never rooted for a bad team. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I led a charmed life as Uh a kid. What could I say? (laughs) Growing up as a Yankees fan in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s. So I cannot speak to this from experience. I would say that there's some incremental difference where, yeah, it's just a, a little bit worse to win 66 than it is to win 67. There is more of a bright line difference between like playoff contender and not playoff contender. Yes. So wherever you set that in a typical season, you know, if it's a mid 80s or high 80s or somewhere around there, depending on your division, maybe it's higher than that. But Once it becomes clear that you're not making the playoffs, that is a a natural stopping point if you're not someone who's wired to watch baseball every day, regardless of the results. But aside from that, I'd say that if you're choosing between the 62-win season and the 76-win season, like all else being equal, obviously you would want more wins, but I would probably be willing to accept the worst season if I thought that it was going to pay off down the road. This is kind of like the tear down rebuild argument. Like I would accept short term terribleness in order to get good again if the alternative is just like being bad in a, a less drastic way, but still not contending. I'd rather be bad and get good again if I can pull off that process, which is not necessarily a guarantee than I would to kind of hover in the Angels zone or the Phillies yeah. zone now where they're just like a bit below 500 every year and sometimes a bit more than a bit. And in both of those cases, uh, those are both good examples of how like you can do the rebuild and you can invest in your roster and it still might not work out. There are no guarantees. But yep. I'd say the thing that really hurts if you're the truly terrible team is not just that you win fewer games and so you have 10 or 15 fewer days where you can be happy about the outcome of that game. But also you are routinely getting outscored by more in games. And so even the games that you're like watching where the outcome is not decided yet, 
you're less likely to win those games and you know that and probably those games are more lopsided so you don't even have the pleasure of a close game i guess you could say that a close game is not ultimately more fun if you end up losing anyway maybe it's even more painful in some ways but in general you're going to be blown out more there's just going to be a bigger run differential in the typical game and the outcome of those losses will be clear earlier in those games and so not only will you have fewer games where you end up winning but you'll also have just a lower percentage of innings in the games where you feel like you're in it and have a conceivable chance to win so I do think it kind of compounds in that way where it's worse than just the wins and losses would indicate but I think that the question is is onto something when it says that, you know, if you're below 500, if you're out of playoff contention, like the difference between that and being good, being a winning team is much bigger than the difference between being a, a bad team and being a horrendous team. Yeah, I guess there could be some like, I don't know, sense of of your worth in the world. Not that you should uh, determine your personal sense of self-worth by how your baseball team is doing. But (laughs) no, don't. (laughs) But but if you're part of a fan base that is like perennially awful in an embarrassing way, or if you are, say, rooting for a team that has never won a World Series and hasn't made the playoffs in longer than any other team in any sport has made the playoffs, just hypothetically. Those are the were... same thing, Ben. <laughs> if you were one of those, then, you know, maybe there's a, a difference between that, between like, you know, if you're a Diamondbacks fan this year or even that, like sure. no one expected the Diamondbacks to be this terrible. They didn't set out to be this terrible. If you were a Pirates fan or if you were, a, a I don't know, an Orioles fan, even those are maybe a little bit different. But just like if you're truly terrible and bottoming out and there's no hope even during spring training and you're not even putting a fun or competitive team on the field a lot of the time. That's probably still different. Like if you're the Angels, you might not make the playoffs, but you at least have some good fun players. In their cases, you have the most fun and best players some of these seasons. So that's a redeeming factor. Even if you're not making the playoffs, it makes it more frustrating that you're failing to make the playoffs in some ways. But at least you get to watch Trout. At least you get to watch Otani. At least you get to watch Rendon. Whereas if you're the team that's winning 50-something games, you don't have a trout. You don't have an Otani, you know, like right. there's just no silver lining. So I think that's a difference too. Yeah. Agreed. I think that they are, they're different states of being and boy, do you feel the difference? Like the difference yeah. between that 2015 Mariners team and, you know, the Mariners team that w- was eliminated from postseason contention on the last day of the season Those were different years. They felt really different. My experience of the team and sort of the general optimism I had was dramatically different. It's meaningful. It really is. Yeah, I think the surrounding seasons matter. Like, is this bad season a blip or is it part of a string of bad seasons with no hope on the horizon? Are you seeing the seeds of the next good team at least? Is the team on the way up or on the way down? I think a 75-win season feels different if you know that it's a stepping stone to something better as opposed to part of an even steeper descent. All right, well, that's probably a, a good stopping point. While we've been answering these emails, the Mets and the Phillies have been playing each other, and Aaron Nola, Phillies starter, just 
tied the all-time record for most consecutive strikeouts. Tom Seaver's record for 10 consecutive strikeouts. Who needs foreign substances? He tied it against Tom Seaver's old team who's wearing Tom Seaver patches on their uniforms. So it was uh, first inning. Jeff McNeil led off and was hit by a pitch. Then Francisco Lindor doubled. And then there were 10 straight strikeouts, (laughs) starting with Michael Conforto. And at the end of that string, there was uh, it was broken up by a, a Pete Alonso double in the fourth and then a Dominic Smith ground out and then James McCann struck out swinging to end the fourth. So it was 11 strikeouts through four, which would have made things interesting, except that this is a scheduled seven inning game. Now, it's one nothing Phillies in theory, it could go to extra innings, but. This is a a wrinkle, an implication of the seven-inning game that I had not considered because the 21-strikeout game is one of the most exciting, unaccomplished feats. That is, uh, I think we've talked on the podcast before, certainly Sam has written about it. That's one of the things that has never been done that really is pretty alluring. Like when someone makes a run at that, even certainly more so than a a no-hitter in this day and age, but... I'm even more excited by the player who's making the run at the 21 strikeout game than even someone who has a perfect game going as rare as that is. We've seen it. We have not seen the 21 strikeout game. And there aren't a lot of interesting record chases these days. And this is one of them that hasn't been done, but it's within someone's grasp potentially. And it would make a great spectator experience because everyone would be aware that this was happening and would have time to tune in. You'd be hanging on every pitch, which is kind of ironic because we talk about there being too many strikeouts in baseball. And yet the 21 strikeout game, a new high would be super exciting. And there's been a a nice little balance where even as the strikeout rate has kept rising, pitcher workloads have fallen. And so it hasn't really become much more likely that the 21 strikeout game happens. And it's still remote and just like at the edge of attainable, but not accomplished yet. And so the fact that seven inning games deprive us of some opportunities To get to the 21 strikeout level, like imagine if Aaron Nola was on pace to do it through seven and the game ended, what a bummer that would be. That'd be a big bummer. (laughs) That would really be bad. I mean, it's uh, five innings now and uh, his pace has slowed. So he's up to 12 strikeouts through five, which would normally leave him with 12 outs to get and nine strikeouts to go, though he's probably not going to get much further today because he hasn't been very efficient and it wouldn't happen. I mean, it's very difficult to do. People are on pace for it and then they're not. And (laughs) that happens inevitably. But... If he had kept that up, like imagine if he's through seven and he's got like 17 Ks or something and then the game ends, we would be shaking our fists at Rob Manfred anew. In a seven inning game, you've only got 21 outs to work with. They'd all have to be Ks. (sighs) See, this is why we just have to go back to nine because there's just too much opportunity for nonsense. Yeah. Too much. Yeah. Definitely in favor of nine or at least in having some consistent level. And as we've said before, it just it feels like surrendering. If uh, your solution to shorter games is let's just lop off a couple innings yeah. instead of actually improving the pace of play, that is doable. <laughs> so let's like try a pitch clock. Let's uh, try to enforce time between pitches and stepping out of the box and everything before we just erase some baseball, which is bad. But this is another reason why it could be bad that I had not even thought about. Rob Manfred, you just, you know, there's just layers on layers of 
the rules that I resent. So we better not get anyone who's on pace or even like in contention for the 21 strikeout game and gets robbed of the opportunity to finish it off because it's a seven inning game. Oh, man. And on a Friday to have to grapple with this on a Friday (laughs) seems unfair. All right. Well, we will leave it there. And we thank you to everyone for the emails. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. Please keep those questions and comments coming. Podcast at Fangraphs.com. That is where you can find us. You can also send us messages via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter or if you live with one and are forced to listen to the podcast and have access to their, their computer. Sorry, again, Kate. <laughs> I feel so much better about my random like pop culture asides now because at least yeah. there was there was something else i'm not saying those were good right but at Uh least they were you know not baseball it's really a little oasis a a brief respite between the talking about baseball (laughs) bring it on is an oasis ben that is true that it's classic (laughs) film (laughs) all right we will stop there well, 12 Ks turned out to be Aaron Nola's total on the day. He lasted only five and a third innings through 99 pitches, so even if it had been a nine-inning game, he would have gone no further. Crisis averted. Still, you were warned, Mr. Manfred. Please don't endanger any future attempts. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Hans von Dolfsen, Jeff Silver, Jamie McNichol, Jeff Roberts, and Steven Scroggins. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. I already told you how and where you can contact us, and I hope you will. Thanks, as always, to Dylan Higgins, and thanks to you for listening today and this week. That will do it for us. We will be back with another episode early next week. Talk to you then. Okay.